Matthew chapter 19 will be there uh, in just a second. Uh, it's good to be with you all this morning. I've never been here. Happy to be here. Um, having known some people who, who are here for a while, it's good to see them again. And I'm happy to be able to share God's Word with you uh, this morning. That's what I intend to do. Uh, and we're going to do our best to stick with, their, uh, with His Word. Uh, and we'll be in uh, Matthew 19. Jesus' purpose was ultimately... Uh, the cross and the resurrection. We just participated in the Lord's Supper, remembering that death, uh, but that death is, is magnified by His resurrection. And that's ultimately what He was here to do. Uh, but John the Baptist preached early on uh, in Matthew 3, uh, in preparation for Jesus' arrival, He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus even says early on in His ministry in Mark chapter 1, that time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe in the gospel. That phrase, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. I don't think that would have been lost on, um, on this Jewish audience that would have been listening to him. I think that's a, a phrase they were pretty familiar with. Um, perhaps that's why it's used so much in Matthew, a book that's primarily written for uh, a Jewish audience. This phrase is used or alluded to several times throughout the Old Testament, but certainly uh, in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, perhaps you remember uh, Daniel chapter 2, um, recounting this wonderful dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Uh, Daniel is interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he talks about all these different kingdoms that will come, uh, which are compared to these different metals, and these different metals comprise this large statue. Um, but after he goes through all of these kingdoms in chronological order, he says in verse 44 in Daniel chapter 2, he says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. A reference to that same kingdom is actually made several more times throughout the book of Daniel. The idea of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. The kingdom of heaven. Now, um, a proper lesson on the kingdom of heaven is either five hours long or perhaps a series of lessons. I'm not going to do either one of those uh, this morning. Really, a a better name for the the sermon would probably be just some stuff about the kingdom of heaven, because that's really what we're going to talk about this morning. Jesus uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, many times. In the gospel, I think it's like 60 plus times it is referenced throughout the, throughout the gospels. And it becomes a staple phrase in his ministry. And one Jewish listeners would have understood. However, I don't believe in the way uh, that Jesus actually intends. Throughout the gospels, as Jesus uses this phrase, he reshapes its meaning. The kingdom of heaven is almost never used to deliver an obvious point. It's not that he speaks against what Daniel says. But I think he shows that the kingdom of heaven accomplishes uh, what is said in Daniel in an unexpected way. For instance, uh, we talked about it a little bit this morning, the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount references the kingdom of heaven a lot. Um, But he says right off the bat, he says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the persecuted. And then later on, 
uh, in his ministry, he says the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. All right, so you got the poor in spirit, persecuted, and children. Now, does that strike you as a kingdom that's going to completely overthrow all these other kingdoms and completely destroy Rome, right? Does that... No, not really, right? And actually, throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus tells several parables about the kingdom. Um... Some about these, the great value of the kingdom, which maybe doesn't come as much as a surprise, but some liken the kingdom to a mustard seed or, or yeast. Not too powerful, right? Um, and others compare it to these rulers and kings. Some of these rulers and kings are just. Some of these rulers and kings are unjust. Some of these are, are completely confusing and unpredictable because they shut out those who are constantly with the king, right? At times it seems as though Jesus is deliberately confusing. Why is that? Why do we think that? Because it's kind of true, right? Um, the disciples even ask in Matthew chapter 13, why do you teach them in parables? To which Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 and verse 9. He says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. And their ears are hard of hearing. And their eyes have been closed. This morning, I hope that we'll come to a better understanding of the kingdom of heaven. I hope that we will see with our eyes and hear with our ears and understand with our heart, as Isaiah 6 says after that, and that we will turn so that we can be healed by him, just as Isaiah says. And to help us come to a better understanding of the kingdom of heaven, I want to take a look at Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, as was read for us in the scripture reading, Matthew 19 and verse 16. Up to this point, Jesus has been preaching for two years, and he has performed wondrous signs and miracles. And he has preached with authority, which struck a lot of those people, and actually brought a lot of people to them. But all these people had these questions, most not getting the answer they anticipated. And beginning in verse 16, we see someone who is intrigued by Jesus, who has a question. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. It says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter the kingdom of life, keep, or if you want to enter life, excuse me, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, or heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Pause right there. Take a look at this rich young ruler. Pretty good guy. Has done a lot of great things. He's rich, he's powerful, he's righteous, he's done all these wonderful things, which leads to 
uh, these disciples asking, well, this guy can't be saved. Who can? We're not like him. To which Jesus responds in verse 26, he says, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then Peter answered and said, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? And so Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for My name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus applauds Peter and the other disciples for their willingness to leave everything to follow Christ. Which is an obvious contrast to the rich young ruler, right? Who was unwilling to do that. And even he ends his response to Peter Peter saying that that in the kingdom the first shall be last in the last first. When we are able to understand the kingdom of heaven we see that it is much different than the kingdom of men. Things do not turn out the way we predict. When we understand the kingdom of heaven, we see that first, God changes our standard of rank. Let me write that down. We see that God changes our standard of rank, or you could say importance. God changes our standard of rank or importance. Because let's take a look at the rich young ruler again, as we did a little bit before. The rich young ruler had every reason to think that he was already in good standing with the Lord. He was rich, which was widely accepted as a reward for righteousness. And he was righteous, right? Uh, he, Jesus lists all these things that you had to do, and he said, I've kept these things from my youth. And it's also proven by the fact that Jesus doesn't refute him when he says he's kept these things from his youth. And assuming he was honest with keeping the last commandment, loving your neighbor as yourself, uh, he was probably a pretty good ruler, right? So by all accounts, this rich young ruler is is a pretty good guy. And yet, he is the one who walks away sorrowfully. Not his disciples. Not the sinners and tax collectors he had spoken to before. Um... Not the blind, not the lame, not the hungry. Actually, these people, when Jesus spoke to them, they went away and they could not contain themselves. They had to go preaching and speaking of this guy who has just healed them and spoken to them, right? The response is much different. And why is that? Well, because Jesus had made very clear that our standard of importance is not his standard of importance. While we may place importance on symbols of power and respect like money, family, or some sort of seat of authority, and while these things aren't bad and can actually be a great blessing, God, what God views as important is a willing heart to sacrifice. God views a willing heart to sacrifice. I need to spell correctly. So sacrifice, right? He views a willing heart to sacrifice as important. And this was the problem with the rich young ruler. And this is what Jesus commands or commends about his disciples. But 
For those of you familiar with the gospel story, uh, as soon as Jesus commends his disciples, it's later on in chapter 20 that he, um, well, he speaks to them. Because James and John request uh, of Jesus, hey Jesus, let us be your left and right hand men. Let us have this great seat of power uh, in the kingdom. Uh, And Jesus has a few things to say about this. But he ends the discussion saying, look, you want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be first? Become a slave. Because Jesus has not placed emphasis on power. And kingdom citizens must be willing to sacrifice that desire for power. There's several things kingdom citizens need to sacrifice. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000. story we're pretty familiar with. He creates this massive following, right? But not long after this, Jesus rebukes these people who were following him. Because they were only following him for food, which perishes, as he says. He tries to encourage them to go after food which leads to eternal life, which he eventually explains is himself. He says, he who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood shall have eternal life. And the people were were pretty thrown off by this statement. Understandably so. I mean, the guy just stood up there and said, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, right? People were so thrown off that they quit following him. They could not make this intellectual hurdle to follow this man, despite the miracle that they had just seen him perform. He had just fed 5,000 people, probably more than that when you consider uh, women and children who would have been there as well. He has just performed this wonderful miracle. And even after that, after Jesus says this statement, they can no longer follow him. I'll tell you another thing that kingdom citizens have to make or have to sacrifice. We're going to have to sacrifice intellectually. That doesn't mean we become dumb. Please do not misunderstand me. That doesn't mean we disregard science and and we become dumb. No, what it means is that we accept Jesus' words as truth. And that's it. That everything is filtered through Jesus in the words that he presents. Kingdom citizens must be willing to sacrifice. Lastly, in Luke chapter 21, when the people are giving gifts to the treasury, we're familiar with this story, Jesus singles out one poor widow who gave the least but ultimately the most because she gave, as Jesus says, out of her poverty. The kingdom of heaven places its importance on the willingness to sacrifice both our physical and mental treasures. The kingdom does not place importance on earthly qualities. Therefore, that's why Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and the last first. But this statement was a rather confusing statement, and so Jesus explains it a little further in Matthew chapter 20. He tells another kingdom parable. It says in 19 verse 30, But he who are first will be last, and the last first. And then in verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went... Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? 
They said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who, and when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. When they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own thing? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first in the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. I believe one thing that is very clear in this passage is that God changes our standard of fairness. God changes our standard of fairness. Because I think one thing, um, just imagine if this story took place today. I mean, I just picture these full-day laborers taking their Uber drive home and putting whatever they could on social media, just railing against this rich landowner. He thinks they can take advantage of these people who are working for them all day, and then, you know, riots ensue. Interviews on today's show happen. Anyways, they things uh, build up. Uh, quite a bit. And obviously I'm using hyperbole here. Um, but I think the outrage would have been clear, right? And yet, the landowner is not the evil one here, but the full day laborers. Because remember, the landowner said he would pay whatever is right, to which they all agreed. Only the full day laborers were promised a set price, and that's exactly what, what they got. Had they not even known that other laborers were even hired, and they just went on with the rest of their day, they would, they would have been completely fine with the whole situation. But as soon as they see somebody else who worked a little less than they did, they're outraged by this. Their mindset immediately changes once they see someone reaping the same rewards as them, but with much less work. This reminds me of, of stories either you've told or perhaps you've heard other people tell um, of getting pulled over because you were speeding. Right? Most of the stories go like this. There were 50 other cars going twice as fast as I was, and yet for some reason I'm the one who got pulled over. As if the fact that other cars were speeding suddenly negates the fact that you were speeding, right? No, as, as a matter of fact, you got pulled over for speeding because it's a, that's exactly what you were doing. For some reason, any time that we have the opportunity to compare ourselves to others, we do it. Instinctively, we do it. Whether it's, for, whether it's rewards that other people get or punishments that other people get, we instinctively compare ourselves to others. But what we see God do is that He changes our standard of fairness because fairness is not based on the whole but the individual. Fairness... You wouldn't know it, but I do teach English. Spelling is rather difficult for me. Uh, fairness is 
not based on the whole, but the individual. This is a difficult concept to understand, uh, or at least apply, because fairness is something that, uh, from a very young age, uh, you demand, right? And when we see other people getting different things than us, we immediately out, uh, show this outcry. But let's go back to the story of the rich young ruler. Because while the rich young ruler and the disciples are pretty much asked to do the same thing, let's face it, the sacrifice of the disciples was far less than the sacrifice of the rich young ruler. At least based on earthly standards, right? What they were asked to give up was far less than that of the rich young ruler. But in the kingdom, fairness is not based on the whole, but the individual. Giving of our means, while that might be a more difficult act for some, is a reflection of a willing heart. And it's something that the kingdom requires of everyone. Jesus told the disciples uh, in uh, in verse 29, back in uh, Matthew 19, he says, Everyone who has left brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children for my name's sake. Who is he calling out there? Those who have left family. He's saying that that's even something that you have to do. And for those who didn't really have much of a family to speak of, that's probably not much of a sacrifice, right? But for those who had loving families, those of you today who have loving families, but have chosen not to follow Christ, not sticking with them and actually following Christ, that's a huge, that is a tremendous sacrifice. And yet, it's something that God has called for all of us to do. And perhaps the most unfair part of this parable is the whole point of the parable. That Jesus ends by saying, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Warning. <laughs> the most important part of this whole thing is the point that he's saying. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Now this is something that we completely, uh, it flies in the face of everything we know and love, right? All right, so most, some of you probably spent a lot of yesterday watching football, right? So what if the team that you were cheering for just completely demolished the other team? And yet, the trophy was given to that losing team and you just had to watch and, you know, that... That, that's terrible. We can't have that, right? Well, I think this bit of fairness is, what, is something that the disciples needed to know as well. And perhaps this did have a special, special significance for them. Because whether you're a full-day laborer, someone who has perhaps followed Christ for years and years and years, or you're just an 11th-hour worker, a babe in Christ, your reward is the same. Our reward in Christ is the same simply because we are not saved based on the number of deeds we've done in our life, but by the grace of God. And because our ultimate, ultimate reward is going to be given on the basis of what we did with what was required of us, not in comparison with others. And while our struggle may seem more difficult than other people, it's human nature to look at other people and see what they're having to go through and compare it to your own. And while our struggle may seem more difficult than others, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 that God is faithful. God is faithful and we can overcome whatever struggle uh, may come our way. Lastly, I think uh, the last uh, thing we see from, from this parable 
is that God changes our standard for grace. God changes our standard for grace. Because this is a story about grace, this parable here. Let's take a deeper look uh, into the world of this parable. The landowner, who's probably one of many in the area, looks to find laborers to tend his vineyard. And perhaps realizing he needed more than he had initially hired, uh, he goes out and hires more throughout the day. Uh, six, third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour. He goes all throughout the day and he hires, hires laborers. Then, unexplained, he goes out at the 11th hour to find some more. Why have these men not been hired? That's actually the question that Jesus asks, right? Or the landowner asks. He says, uh, why have you not been hired? Is it because they were lazy? Were they just negligent? Were they irresponsible? Well, it's not stated, right? But these laborers don't strike me as having any of those qualities. No, they're still out. They're standing up looking for more work, all for the simple reason that they just hadn't been hired. That's why. So why? Why had they not been hired? Well, it, it's only my speculation here. But in those days, think about it. Who would have been ignored? Even today, who would be ignored for something like that? But maybe the physically disabled? Maybe the sick? Maybe the weak? Maybe the elderly? Now, at the 11th hour of the day, this landowner goes to hire some people who have been overlooked by other landowners and himself for most of the day, right? And also, I doubt that the landowner really needed a whole lot of work done in the final hour of the workday. And plus, even if he did, what kind of work would these men have been able to offer if indeed they are sick, elderly, uh, weak, and physically disabled? You see, the point of this was not the preservation of the vineyard or making more money off of these workers. That wasn't the point of what the, of what the landowner had done. The point was for providing work for those who are unable to find it. The landowner shows grace towards these workers. Story continues. Once the time came uh, to pay all these laborers, the landowner pays the latecomers first, uh, and it's a denarius each, what was promised to the full-day laborers. And then the landowner continues to go down the line and pay a, everyone the same. But is it a matter of money that made these full-day laborers so upset? Maybe. But I think the scriptures add a little bit more than just money. Sure, making more money would have been nice, but they are upset because by paying them these no-good, these weak 11th-hour workers, the same... What's it say? You have made them equal to us. You have made them equal to us. You see, it wasn't all about the money. It was the principle of the matter. The landowner has made a clear declaration about their value and worth and stripped their sense of superiority and privilege. Think back, what was it that set the Jews off during Jesus' time so much. There are several things. But when Jesus or even the disciples in, in the book of Acts compare them negatively to the Gentiles, 
and the outcasts. And he speaks the same message of salvation to them. Jesus' uh, life is, is, well, people try to take Jesus' life for several different things. He ignored the Sabbath. Uh, he compared himself equally to God. But perhaps the one that really sets them off is that he preaches salvation to the Gentiles. It was already talked about during uh, the, the, the short message earlier before the Lord's Supper. There is a strong social divide, racial divide between this group. And now, Jesus has said, they can be saved as well. Why would this have upset them so much? Why would someone else's salvation affect their own? Well, it obviously, it obviously doesn't, right? But they were so upset because it made them equal to Gentiles and sinners. They had worked a full day. They had suffered thousands of years as God's chosen people. And now suddenly you're going to strip all of that away and just hand it to these Gentiles? How can you do that? How can you make them equal to us? Well, what these full day laborers and the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day failed to see is that grace is a fundamental element of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus spoke of the Jewish leaders not being able to see the plank in their own eye throughout his ministry because they could not see how the same grace that had been extended to them is what's being extended to these Gentiles and these sinners. It's the same grace that had been uh, given to them for generations and generations. Was it the same amount of grace? I don't know. It's impossible to answer. But that's not really the point, right? The point is that they all have fallen short of the glory of God and all are in need of God's grace. God changes our standard for grace and we see that kingdom citizens must recognize that all are in need. All are in need of God's grace. In order for us to truly understand uh, what the kingdom of heaven is about, and to truly be uh, kingdom citizens, we must acknowledge that first, God changes our standard of rank. We have to fight our selfish urge to place importance on uh, wealth or rank or intellectual prowess or some sort of authority that we may have. Or let's bring it a little closer to home. We have to fight the urge to place emphasis on a storied Christian family. We've been Christians for generations and generations. We can't place importance on that. We can't place importance on people who speak or perform acts of worship on Sundays and Wednesdays. And like the rich young ruler, we can't place importance on our own righteousness. That's not how it works. The kingdom of heaven bases its importance on a willingness to sacrifice, both for God and our brothers and sisters in Christ. And secondly, God changes our standard of fairness. We, are king, or we understand the kingdom of heaven when we understand that God changes the standard of fairness. We cannot deem what is fair based on what others have. We can't do that. And no matter whether our struggle seems worse than another's, we are required to do with what is required of us. With the knowledge that God is faithful and that we can overcome the struggles that come our way. And lastly, God changes our standard of grace. Since the time of Cain and Abel, jealousy, jealousy over who is better has existed, right? People have reacted to that in many different ways. 
It's a natural urge for ourselves to, uh, to compare ourselves to others, to either increase our own self-worth or, or perhaps just justify some actions that we've done. But when we do this continuously, we develop an entitled, superior attitude, unwilling to show grace or gratitude to those we deem inferior. And before we think that we're above that, Before we think I would never just look at somebody else and immediately think that I'm better than them. Well, how often do our actions reflect that? Or perhaps a better question is how often do our lack of actions actually reflect that? James 2 talks about a particular type of Christian. Talks about the be warmed and filled Christian. The type of Christian who walks down the street, sees someone who is cold and hungry, and says to them, Ooh, looking kind of hungry. Hope you find some food. You're looking kind of cold. I, I, it's getting cold these days. I hope, you, I hope someone provides you with a, a sweater. I hope you find a nice warm place to live. And then, all right, I'll see you later. Yet James speaks very clearly against that person. James speaks very clearly against the person who says, I really hope you find what you need. Let, let's pray about that. And then does nothing to actually fix the problem. Perhaps we avoid giving grace because it is much more comfortable for us to just kick the can a little further down the road. Besides, someone else is better at that than I am anyways, so how about I just let someone else take care of it? Or perhaps we avoid giving grace because we hate being taken advantage of. There's nothing worse than giving money to someone and then seeing them just go buy it pack of beer or something like that right i mean that just kills us that we gave this to them to help protect themselves and here they are just wasting it we hate being taken advantage of right or perhaps it's because we're just angry and we feel as though a greater lesson must be taught this person has taken advantage of us time after time after time and i'm not going to let that happen again no i need to teach this person a lesson i'm no longer showing them any type of grace or forgiveness I'm not, so, let's look, at the, let's look at the landowner. I'm not saying that we have to be completely stupid in, in, in our giving of, of grace and forgiveness, right? But at least a little bit. We've got to be at least a little stupid, because look at the landowner here. Can you imagine being this guy's accountant? I mean, the guy's just throwing out denarius to anyone who just steps foot on his land, right? I mean, you may say that he's being irresponsible with his money. You may say he's being irresponsible, but the point of this whole parable was to extend unreasonable grace. The point of this parable was that the landowner was willing to show unreasonable grace to his workers. This greater standard of grace is not just wonderful because it has been shown to us, but that in addition to that, we may show it to others, even if it means throwing aside our political our racial and socioeconomic opinions, that standard of grace, that unreasonable grace, must be given to one another as God has shown it to us. There's so much more that could be said about the kingdom of heaven, but I hope that we have a better understanding that it's not like the kingdom of men. The kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdom of men, and we should be thankful for that fact, right? Because this unreasonable grace has been shown to us. 
But if you're not a Christian, you haven't seen it yet. I really hope you would. Because God's grace is unlike anything we can experience here. God has taken away our faults and our sins and has cleared us from that through Jesus' death and resurrection. But if you haven't shown that grace, or perhaps there are things that you just need to get off your chest, I I invite you to speak to people here. I'm not a member of this congregation. I'm thankful to be speaking here. Uh, Speak, But you can speak to me, but speak to some of the other people who are here uh, for prayers, or perhaps if you want to be a Christian, believe me, we can all stick around and make that happen. Uh, If if you have any need for God's invitation, I invite you to come uh, while we stand and sing.